0: Thank you, Terry and Aaron, for leading us in worship. Friends, as we um, gather together around God's word, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12 of Ecclesiastes 5. And, and you can maybe tear off a corner of your bulletin to mark Luke chapter 8, but we're not going to get there quite yet. We're going to get warmed up in Ecclesiastes first before we move over to Luke. Ecclesiastes um, is, uh, well, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, but if you're looking for, okay, where do I find this one? If you open to the middle of the Bible, you'll probably hit Psalms and then flip forward from Psalms to Proverbs to Ecclesiastes. We're going to continue today in our series on the 40 days of generosity, which will lead us right up to Thanksgiving. And so there's different passages that have to deal with how are we generous, perhaps with wealth or with time or with in our spirit? And so we come to Ecclesiastes 5, and then in a minute we'll turn to Luke 8. But before we read God's word together, we pray for God's blessing upon the word. This comes from our understanding that we need the Holy Spirit to make the scriptures alive to us, to speak to us fresh and new. And so let's pray for God's Holy Spirit to bless the opening of God's word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. Your Holy Spirit, our teacher. and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the furthering of his kingdom, our primary concern. Speak, for we, your servants, listen. Not just with ears or reading with eyes, but we listen with hearts that are ready to be spoken to by you, O God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. After the reading of the word, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you are grateful, I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, just in reading that short section of Ecclesiastes 5, a fair question might be, who would you rather be from that text? Would you rather be a rich person or a poor person? Now, most of us outside of reading scripture would say, well, you know, in general, we wouldn't mind being the rich person. Maybe Ecclesiastes uh, turns this both ways on us, though. Would you rather be the rich person or the poor person? At the beginning, at verse 8, when kind of this next line of thinking starts in Ecclesiastes 5, I think we'd rather just not be the poor person. Uh, Scripture says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district, okay, I don't really want to be oppressed, and justice and rights denied, I don't really want justice and rights denied me, don't be surprised at such things. Well, now I really don't want to be the poor person. Scripture says if, if their justice and rights and dignity are uh, being hindered or thwarted, don't be surprised. Doesn't mean don't be disappointed. Doesn't mean that we don't do work and ministry to build up and support. And as Cody just prayed in his prayer, to, to make their hunger our hunger. But it would seem that the poor might be kind of at the bottom powerless, maybe not, as, um, maybe not as much ability to even get the rights and dignity because there's people up above them, one official higher above the other, and at the very top, the king himself. Sometimes in Israel's history, there is just and righteous kings, and other times, not so much. So if you're at the bottom, you might be kind of stuck. And that doesn't sound like a very good place to be. So, well, I don't want to be the poor person in this one, um, because it seems like they're just kind of at the mercy of those who are more powerful above them, that even the fields that they work in, well, the king himself wants a cut of the profits from the fields. But then if we go maybe to the end of what we read today, we think, you know what, maybe I actually do want to be the poor person, I don't want to be the rich person who can't sleep, because... Their running of an empire, their busy life, their their overwhelmed amount of responsibilities permits them no sleep. But the laborer, the laborer in the fields, the poor person who might not have as much say in how their life goes or input on their human dignity and flourishing, well, at least the sleep of the laborer is sweet. At least when they get done with a good hard day, whether they are well fed or whether they wish they had a little bit more to eat, at least they get to sleep at night. And maybe the one who's a little bit higher up the rung, who, you know, is always going to get their cut. Maybe they don't sleep so well at night. Who would you rather be? The rich or the poor? Would you want to be the one, and this I think applies to rich and poor alike, verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income, whether that be the king at the top, Or it could also be the laborer at the bottom. The only point of distinction that we're given is at least one of them can sleep at night and the other cannot. But I wonder if there's a better question framed within our 40 Days series that we find. Rather than when we read Ecclesiastes, would we rather be the rich or the poor, knowing that there's some trade-offs for both of them? Would we rather be the generous person? whether rich or poor, to be the generous person. And of course, especially because we're in church together, we would say, oh, of course that's the right answer. Of course we're the generous person, whether rich or poor. That's the right answer, isn't it? And, and maybe some of, our, some of our reading can be done when we know Ecclesiastes was written by the teacher who was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And it doesn't say Solomon but it's kind of Solomon-like, someone really wise who is a king, who is very wealthy, who says, man, the rich, they can't sleep at night, but at least the laborer can sleep well. We might actually wonder if, uh, if Solomon has over-idealized the notions of what it would be like to be a laborer since he has been born into a palace and has been raised as a prince and ultimately as a king. So we might have a little bit of pushback on that. In the same way that, just based on where I grew up, I sometimes have some pushback against the over-idealized notions of what it looks like to be a farmer. And I'm like, good luck, y'all. But who would you rather be? Especially, what if, what if the question becomes completely irrelevant? Who would you rather be, a rich person or a poor person? What if your life circumstances never ultimately offer you that choice to make a change to your setting in life? Well, then what are we to do with Ecclesiastes 5, one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament? How can it be wise for us, regardless of our status? How can it be wisdom for all of us? We can be the generous person. Instead of asking the question of, do I have enough to be happy? Because if we read Ecclesiastes carefully, we understand that that question in itself is a trap. And a trick, do I have enough to be happy? Uh, that might be a hunger that is never satisfied. Or if we kind of get closer but still miss the mark on generosity, we could ask instead of do I, do I have enough to be happy? Well, we might never have enough to be happy. We might never be fully satisfied with having enough or with the right stuff or the best stuff or the most finer things. We could venture towards, do I have enough to give and share? Do I have enough to give and share? Well, when would you know, how would you know that you have enough to give and to share? But rather the the true question that emerges from generosity, whether rich or poor, whether a high setting in life or a low status in life, the true question that could be asked that would lead us into generosity is this, how can I be generous with what I have right now? Not the future-leaning version of what will I do once this happens or how will I be generous once that happens, but rather how can I be generous with what I have right now? Would this not simplify life? For, Maybe this gives you the ability to to practice some of your own agency. You know what? There's always going to be someone who has more. There's always going to be someone who has just a little bit nicer, finer things. You have your vehicle. Somebody else is going to get a newer one right after you. How do we learn that contentedness that allows us to be generous with what we have? Right now. Not once this happens or once that happens. But right now, where we are, how do we learn to be generous? And this simplifies life. Because if it's a question of what can I do with what I have, then it's what you already have accessible. It's with maybe wealth and status and authority, what you can do right now already for those around you. Or if it's with meager means, what can you do that will bless someone? And I think in both cases, the sweet, the sleep is sweet of those who bless with what they have. Now, here at North Holland, we're kind of a mixed group, right? There are those who are of lesser, lesser means and wealth by a traditional earthly sense, and there are certainly those who have greater wealth and means. But I think what can unite us is not about a competition of who gives the most, But what unites us is how do we bless with what we have? Each one of us, coming right from where we are, regardless of age or status, what is it that we do with what we have already that we can bless the world? Instead of waiting until we have enough, instead of waiting until we can do this, that, or the other, because that day will never come. Now to Take a quick break from thinking about money. Consider how you know, time and money are equated. Consider how this might work in a, a relationship such as a marriage. What if the question was, okay, I'm going to be really generous with the time that I give to my spouse. Because hopefully in a marriage, we, we want to seek our spouse's flourishing. We could say, I'm going to be really generous with the time that I give to my spouse, to my family, after This is done. After this big project is finished, I'll be really generous with my time. Or once we finish up this season of life, I'll be really generous with my time. You know that that is never actually going to happen, right? You'll never get there. Because there will always be the next thing that will demand our time. There will always be the next project or the next season in life that will consume our time. And so if we can't be busy, if we can't get rid of being busy, how do we find time to be generous with relationships that matter most? I think one thing that I am focused on right now due to some of the continuing education that I have is uh, a phrase that I keep coming back to is the spiritual discipline of a busy person is to be busy with the right things. The spiritual discipline of a busy person is to be busy with the right things. And so instead of playing the game of what you have to take care of either in time or priority or wealth or finance to become generous, are we busy and generous with the right things right now with what we have? Or are we waiting for some more idealized time where we won't be as busy so that we can do X, Y, or Z? Friends, at some level, the challenge is this. Your priorities are either intact or they're not. And if they're not, circumstances are not going to change them where all of a sudden things will fall into place. There's a reason that we call most of the best work that we do as Christians spiritual disciplines. We are people who are called to be generous. Generous with what we have, whether it be the laborers who can share a meager meal together, or whether it be the king at the very top. And I wonder, more than wonder, if a word that helps us, this came out of staff as we did devotions this week, was enriched. Has your life been enriched by others? And if it has, how are you enriching the life of those around you? Is it with the gifts that you give or uh, the, the words that you offer or the time that you spend? A truly generous person realizes that regardless of their wealth, a generous person knows that their life has been enriched. And generosity begets generosity, and it leads us to want to enrich the lives of others with what we have right now. Not waiting, not hoping that life circumstances will change to allow it to be possible. So if it's a matter of changing time to be more generous with time, here's a challenge that I would offer you. If, you don't, if your priorities are a little bit out of whack and maybe there needs to be a different allocation of time for, for some relationships that matter, maybe with family, or if there's some, you know, like, okay, there is some generosity that I could practice with what I have right now if I get out of this fantasy of arriving at this, that, or the other level. Friends, if you don't do it this week, it's never going to happen because you'll only enter back into the trap of waiting for life to be perfect so that you can do all the things that you intend to do. So what do you do this week to celebrate your capacity to be generous with your time or with your wealth? Because if it doesn't happen this week, it's not going to happen. It'll just be put on the list of eventuallys, after circumstances change. Can we be generous with meager means? There's one story that always comes back to mind for me for this. It was a a youth group work trip when I was a student, and we were in Denver, and there's a significant homeless population in Denver. And if you think to yourself, I don't think Denver is where I would want to be homeless because it's cold, I would agree with you. We had the same discussions in Alaska, and ultimately, Instead of with uh, maybe some judgment or suspicion, I think for us to learn more about that, we'd have to go to Anchorage or to Denver and volunteer in a mission and work with homeless people and figure out just how did these people end up here. And that would give us a lot more charity in our hearts and a little bit less judgment in our minds. But we're in Denver, we're a high school group, and there's, you know, there's a lot of homeless people out in the, in the city mall. And uh, we were kind of warned by the group guides, like, "Hey, you know, especially youth, don't don't get cornered by people. You know, don't get off by yourselves." Um, and you kind of watch for people who maybe, you know, let's let's try to just corner a couple of teenage girls and ask them for money or something. Well, there was a, a homeless man who was wandering, and he went up to, I kid you not, the biggest guy in the whole mall. I mean. This guy walks up, not not trying to corner off someone who is vulnerable, not trying to intimidate someone. This guy walks up to the biggest guy he could find. Guy was about six, the the non-homeless guy was about six foot six, two hundred and eighty pounds, big guy. And this homeless man falls down at his knees and says, Please, will you give me something to eat? Look at me, man. I'm starving. I just need something to eat. And the big guy kind of figures, man, I'd be suspicious if you would have tried to corner somebody else, but he came up to me. He said, all right, well, there's an Arby's over here. And so we went over to Arby's, sat down, they prayed together, they shared food. And the guy, you know, didn't want to take too much, didn't want to ask too much. So they got a value meal and a roast beef sandwich. And the man in our group noticed the guy didn't eat his whole sandwich because he took it with him. And then they went out into the streets and we watched because it was too much food, too much of Value Meal from Arby's was too much food for him to keep to himself. So he had to go and share with his friends what he had out of a Value Meal classic roast beef sandwich and fries. What he had, he had to share. How do you be generous with what you have right now? Not wait until this, that, or the other happens. Because then we will find what is so true in Ecclesiastes, that if we love money, we'll never have enough. If we love wealth, we'll never be totally satisfied with our income, because this too is meaningless and temporary. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Generosity needs to start now, or it never will. And if you're already living patterns of generosity, you experience the goodness of that, and the celebration of generosity, and I think the joy that comes from being able to share. And if I could have the joy of a homeless person sharing a roast beef sandwich with his friends, that is a truly generous joy. And I have far more than a roast beef sandwich and a medium fry from Arby's. Generosity is a now type of thing. We might not come to a point where we're more satisfied with our position in life, but we can be satisfied with the level of generosity that we practice and let that generosity be contagious and inspiring, and may it give us some joy. Not to be flaunted, Jesus talks about that, not to be put on display for how generous we are, but... To be generous in ways that truly give us joy. Not with what we wish we had, but with what we have right now. This is what I can give at this moment in time. How can I be generous with what I have? And sometimes we might resist that. We might just trick ourselves into living a lifelong lie of waiting until, 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 until to do what we think we ought to do. Or maybe we'll just resist it entirely and live by a different set of principles. And we can do that, and we'll find out just how right Ecclesiastes is. But at this time, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Friends, this is is one of the greatest moments that is under-narrated in the New Testament. Luke 8, 1-3 is just this little sidebar of a few people in, in what I would call the Jesus, the Jesus mission, who are going around from village to village. But there's something at play here that Luke doesn't draw that much attention to, but he does mention it because he doesn't want us to miss it. And I don't think he wants to get in trouble for it, but he also, for the benefit of all of us 2,000 years later, does include this detail. Luke 8, 1-3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Husa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At The beginning of our passage in Ecclesiastes, we talked about, you know, maybe perhaps there's an unjust king who's over everyone else, who who oppresses people, and scripture tells us, be disappointed, but don't be surprised. This is just human nature put on power. You think of it, an example and a name that came up in Luke 8, 1-3 of such a king as that who was unjust and unrighteous, Herod. Do you remember Herod? Herod who um, was so afraid, so ungenerous, so stingy with power that he spent time being paranoid throughout most of his life. And when he heard that there was other people who might recognize someone else as a king, what did he do? He wanted all the baby boys to be killed, to deny them even life This Herod, Herod Antipas, the opposite of generous, in fact, stingy, who clung to things. And his life legacy, he did pull off a couple really impressive building projects, and you can still visit them today. But ultimately, his legacy was one of being paranoid, even uh, killing some of his own relatives so that they wouldn't be a threat to his throne. This Herod, with all of his control, and I bet you Herod did not sleep well at night because of his paranoia of losing power or wealth. And Herod was very, very wealthy. He made all the right deals to get in right with Rome. Herod was powerful and wealthy. And here we have it. Herod, who thought he had everything controlled down to the letter. Herod, who didn't even want Jesus to live. The Jesus mission is being supported out of her own means by Joanna, the wife of Huza, who is the household manager for Herod's household. That blows my mind. Herod wanted Jesus to be killed, but he doesn't even know that money from his household is supporting the Jesus mission. The Jesus mission that's going around not talking about the kingdom of Herod, but talking about the kingdom of heaven. Joanna... Her wealth comes from Herod's household. Huza is the household manager. He's in charge of the daily affairs in the palace of Herod. And Huza's wife, Joanna, is taking all the money that she has and she is bankrolling the Jesus mission so that the disciples have food to eat and places to stay. It is the greatest irony and turning point that is, that's why I call it the most under- Under, uh, I forgot the word I used earlier. It's a much bigger deal than Luke makes it out to be. But I think he does, understated, yes. Uh, But I don't think he wants to draw too much attention to it at the time that he wrote it. But Joanna is being generous with what she has. She is not ashamed of the fact that her money comes from the household of Herod. Everybody knows that Herod's kind of Horrible. But it's not with shame that she's like, well, I got rich because my husband manages Herod's household. She's like, I'm a person of means and wealth because of Herod's household. And I'm going to do something meaningful with what I've got right now. We get afraid of maybe dirty money. Ooh, don't want that. It's all dirty money. (laughs) And it can't be sinful because if it was sinful for Jesus to be fed by money from Herod's household, because Herod's household is a household of sin, it would not be possible for Jesus to have been fed by Joanna because Jesus was without sin. Jesus casts demons out of Joanna and lets her join the Jesus entourage. And the wife of Huza, the manager of Herod's household, is supporting the disciples out of her own means. Joanna is one of the unspoken heroes for doing generously what she could with what she had. And friends, one of my favorite things is just that you can try as hard as you might to be a Herod, to have control and to get powerful and wealthy and protect your empire, and you might get outsmarted by Joanna, by God's Holy Spirit, moving at just the right time in the right place. So, friends, be generous. Be generous and experience the joy of it or you might get Joanna'd by God's sense of humor. We do what we can with what we have to give glory to God. And so I leave you with that challenge. Two of them. One, what do you think you're going to do? What's the thing that holds you back? I'll do this once X, Y, or Z happens. And two, thinking about Joanna and Huza and Herod. Friends, are you experiencing the joy of generosity? Because if you're not, God will outsmart you and make you generous anyway, and you will lose out on the joy of generous sharing. With Ecclesiastes and Solomon, with Joanna and Huza and Herod, God makes himself generous in the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the understated heroes like Joanna, who outsmarted one of the most powerful and tyrant-like kings of his time and supported something good and beautiful out of what she had. Lord, we thank you for the warnings that Ecclesiastes gives us of not wanting to be content with circumstances, but finding contentment within our lives with what we have right now. God, help us to look into our lives, observe our hearts, and ask if we're practicing the type of generosity that gives us joy, or if maybe we're holding back in a way that is short circuiting our joy. Help us not to rush in in foolish ways, but not to wait too long in ways that become forever holding patterns. God, thank you that you are generous with us, first and foremost, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us that we may live. Help us then to live a life of goodness, of grace, and of generosity. Amen.